Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. Well, I did it again, this time on my ministry trip to Poland, I just got back from. I lost my glasses. These are not my glasses. These are my old glasses. So I, I couldn't find them anywhere. I'm looking all over my room there in Poland, and I got to get going. So I have this really big, heavy book bag with my computer stuff and my books and everything. And, and so I go and grab my book bag, and I lift it up, and there are my glasses underneath crushed, just smushed, just, I mean, there are all kinds of wacky and wobbly, just really, really bad. And, and I just mean flat. I don't know about you. I need my glasses. Anybody else? I need my glasses. You know, they correct my vision. They keep things from going blurry. And, and you know what? This world is blurry enough, isn't it? World specializes in blurry constantly distorting the truth with lies, right with wrongs, replacing facts with fiction and feelings. And, and today I want you to find your glasses. And I want you to put them on. I want you to take the word of God with me and let it improve our vision. Let it correct our vision. Because today, you and I need to turn our eyes to Jesus. And we need to see his glory. We need to see his grace. We need to gaze upon him, who he is, and what he has done. And today, to do that, we're going to return to the book of John. And some of you have been in a church a while. You remember the book of John? We've taken about a six-month break from the book of John, from Christmas and Easter and thereabout. We did some topical things. We're going to dive back in to the book of John where we see glory revealed to us. That's what we're going to do. And this glory of God who is among us, it's the majesty of deity who has become humanity. God himself coming out of heaven to be a man to walk among us and teach us and give his life for us. And Jesus in the book of John has told us about himself. He has said, I am the great I am. I am the I am of Exodus who has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He has told us, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And most recently in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus' glory is revealed in what he says about himself, but it's also revealed in what he does. In the book of John, there are seven miraculous signs. These miracles starting with turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, healing the official son in Capernaum, healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, walking on the Sea of Galilee, healing the blind man in Jerusalem, and then lastly in chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead, the last great sign we see in John, in the town of Bethany. What is the result of this? Many of the Jews are coming to faith and believing in Jesus, but the chief priests and the authorities, the Pharisees, they plot to kill him. The word goes out orders to arrest him. If anyone knows where he is, tell us. And once again, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We jump back into John in the chapter, chapter 12. So take your Bibles, read along with me. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It's six days before the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary. Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We turn our eyes upon Jesus this morning. And the first thing we see is we behold his great courage and his great love. We're told it's six days before the Passover. And you know Passover, that's the celebratory feast held once a year in Jerusalem, just commemorating the miraculous deliverance out of Egyptian slavery, culminating with those, those 10 plagues, that 10th plague, 
the death angel passing over every single home that was marked with the blood of the lamb. And I have to ask you, have you been marked by the blood? Because judgment is coming. You need to make sure you are covered by the blood. You need to make sure the blood of Jesus Christ is atonement for your sin. You need to receive that gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. You must have your life marked with the blood of Jesus Christ. You must have your soul marked with the blood of Jesus Christ. Or you will fall under the judgment of a divine God. Make sure you repent of your sin. Make sure you call out to God and may your soul be marked with his blood. And that's what communion was all about. Communion is remembering the blood of the lamb that was shed to save me, to save you from our sins. We're told it's six days before Passover. What does that mean? He's got six days to live. That's what that means. This is six days before brutal torture and death of the Lord. This is six days before pain and humiliation and being spit upon and punched in the face and his beard pulled out from his face and his back lacerated and thorns crushed into his scalp. This is six days before nails go into his hands and into his feet and he's hung up on that cross and mocked by a watching world. This is six days before all of this happens. Six days before he carries your sin upon himself, my sin. Six days before the divine judgment of his holy father falls on him the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. And where is he? He's in Bethany. Why Bethany? What's Bethany about? Bethany is only a stone's throw from Jerusalem where he will die. Here's a map. We, we see Bethany is very close. It's only two miles from Jerusalem. We know what's going on in Jerusalem. It, it is this hive of hatred buzzing and busy with these empty religious traditions and buzzing and busy with these hateful religious leaders that are actively looking for him. He's very close. They want to arrest him. He's very close. They want him dead. And he's there with great courage. He's there with courage because he's going to go to the cross for you. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's there with great courage for his friends whom he loves. He knows what's happened. John 11, from that day on they plotted to kill him. Chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone were, knew where he was, he should report it to them so they could arrest him. Would you be anywhere near Jerusalem? No way. We'd be as far away as possible. And he is there with great courage because he is there with great love. He's great love for, for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We know John 11, 5 says he loved them. He loves these three siblings. We know at the grave of Lazarus, he's weeping. John 11, Jesus saw her crying. The Jews who had come with her crying. He was deeply moved in his spirit. He's troubled, even though he's about to raise him from the dead. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come see. Jesus wept. And what was the response of the Jews? See how he loved him. Jesus is a lover of people. He's a lover of souls. Jesus is a man who is not afraid to show his emotions. He's a man who's not afraid to cry for those he loves. He's a man of great courage. He's a man of great love. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and secondly, we see he is worthy of worship. And now we have these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're going to teach us about worship See, worship is like a, like a diamond. And, and you turn it, and it sparkles in brilliance every single way you turn it. And so our lives are to be a constant, in a constant state of worship, no matter where they turn and what we are doing. We are to be giving glory to God, worshiping our God. And oftentimes we think of worship as just singing, singing songs. Worship embodies all the facets of your life and all of the facets of my life. Our lives should always be in a state of worship, no matter what we are doing, no matter where we are going, glorifying our God. And we see some of those facets of worship in this passage. And what God is going to do, he's going to teach you and teach me, what does it really mean to worship? 
We see first that worship is courageous. They give a dinner for him there. They're throwing a big dinner in, in, in his honor. They know the commands. They know the orders of the religious leaders, and they are disregarding them. If anyone knows where he is, report it so we can arrest him. And they are not only knowingly breaking the rules of the religious leaders, they are harboring a fugitive and throwing him a party because they love the Lord. Reminds me of Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.9, we must obey God rather than people because we answer to a higher authority. And whenever you are given the position where you must either obey the government or obey God because they are at odds, you always obey God. The word of God is the priority. And so they obey God. And I want you to understand there's no shame. There's no shame to be seen with Jesus. There's no shame to be known as a follower of Jesus. There's no shame in naming the name of Jesus. Child of God, stop feeling shame. Never feel shame for your Savior. Never feel shame to name his name at work or among neighbors or among relatives. Never feel shame as a follower of Jesus Christ, among classmates or teammates. Never feel shame. There is no shame. He is the one that has saved you. He is the one that has changed you. He is the one that has given you everything you have, life now and life to come. There is no shame in the name of Jesus. Feel no shame. Feel no shame in his message. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. You know what you should be ashamed of? Be ashamed of this world. Never Jesus Christ. Be ashamed of the sin that we see. Never your Lord and Savior. No shame for the Lord. See, worship is courageous. Why don't you notice worship is also Gratitude. They throw this big dinner in honor of Jesus. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's, it's this expression of, of, of love and appreciation for changing his life and saving his life and raising his life. So worship is courageous and worship is gratitude and worship next is hospitality. They are in the town of Bethany for this big dinner and they are not at Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' house. Many people believe they are. See, there's another man that lives in Bethany and his name is Simon the leper. And they have all gathered at Simon's house. And we have parallel passages that teach this. Matthew 26, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, who's been healed. And Mark 14, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came, that's Mary, with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume of pure nard. And so Simon has opened up his home showing hospitality and worship of the Savior. And there's at least 17 people in his house. You have Simon, you have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you have Jesus, that's five, plus the 12 disciples make 17. Not including Simon if he has family, wife, and children, or any neighbors or friends that others they have invited. So there's at least 17 people in his home. He's opened up his home. Worship is hospitality. Worship is service. We see Martha again in verse 2. What is doing? What is she doing as she always does? She's serving. She's such a good servant. Always serving, always working hard, this time without complaining about her sister. That's good. Martha is an example to you. Martha is an example to me to work hard on behalf of the Lord. She's a great example of what it means to serve God. Her life exhorts us to serve God. Her life challenges you and me to make sure we are serving God. See, we, we don't come into church saying, what's in it for me? Is this message going to be any good? Is the worship going to be any good? Is my coffee going to be cold at the cafe? See, I just want to remind you what happens today is not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about turning our eyes to him, not to you, not to me. So how are you serving Jesus? What are you doing for him? How are you using your spiritual gift? What is your spiritual gift? Do you know it? You've heard me say this before. We'll help you find it. Just go online to this website, our website. There's a spiritual gift survey you can take. 
I encourage you to take it. Find out how God has gifted you. You know he's gifted you. He's gifted you with either the gift of mercy or the gift of service, the gift of leadership, administration, gift of giving, gift of teaching, preach. There's different gifts. Go there and find out how God has gifted you. And follow Mary's ex- example and serve the Lord. Worship is courageous and gratitude. It's hospitality, it's service. By the way, worship is time. It's spending time with Jesus. We see Lazarus in verse 2 is one of those reclining at the table with him. He's conversing with the Lord. He's listening to the Lord. He's learning. He's fellowshipping with the Lord. You may say, well, why isn't he serving? Give me a break. He just got out of the grave, okay? Let him sit with Jesus for a little bit. And I want to encourage you to spend time with your Lord every single day. Spend time in his word. Read it. Spend time listening to what he has to say. Spend time in prayer. Worship your Lord by spending time with your Lord. And then we come to Mary. And she teaches us that worship is sacrifice. And we go into the richness and the depth of this beautiful passage. And she takes us to a whole nother level of what it means to worship. And she's going to teach you and teach me as we watch her. Mary's worship. And and my prayer is that God Almighty will just help us squeeze every last drop of teaching out of this passage. Like every last drop out of that vial she poured on the Lord. God, teach us what it means to worship. We see from her example that worship is personal. She takes this perfume. She makes the choice. It was just more than just a thought. She acted on it. And her worship next was spontaneous. It hits her. She sees her brother and she sees Jesus sitting together talking and she knows her brother was just dead in a tomb for four days and Jesus has called him forth. Lazarus come forth and she is just overwhelmed and in a moment of pure gratitude and love she excuses herself and returns with this precious gift of sacrifice. Spontaneous, not planned. Worship is public. She does this in front of Simon at his house and any of his family that may or may not be there. She does this in front of her siblings, Martha and and Lazarus. Mary does this in front of all of the disciples. It's public. Her worship is costly. It's a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard. Do you know what the most expensive perfume today is? There's a picture of it. It's called Schumach from Dubai. Next time you're in Dubai, pick up some, okay? Made of Indian argar wood and sandalwood and Turkish rose and those other ingredients they will not disclose. And by the way, there's only one bottle in existence and that's it. And it'll set you back $1.29 million. Uh Uh-uh, not for the bottle, for one ounce of the bottle. It's $1.29 million for an ounce. And anybody who buys Schumach is a schmuck, as far as I'm concerned, okay? Now... Mary's perfume may not be Schumach, but we're told it's pure nard, which is a fragrant oil. It's made from the roots and stems of an aromatic herb found in the mountains of northern India. It's precious. It's imported in special containers and opened and used only for very special occasions. Do you realize Mary, like David, knows that worship will cost? That's what she knows. She understood there was a cost to worship. There's a cost to worship. David in 2 Samuel 24, I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not be cheap with my God. He is worthy of my worship. I will not offer to him anything that costs me nothing. It's personal, it's spontaneous, it's public, it's costly, it's very generous. Her worship is generous, it's extravagant, it's lavish. It's a pound of perfume, pure and expensive. And by the way, she uses it all, not just a portion of it. She uses it all in a matter of seconds on Jesus and not just anointing his feet, but pouring it on his head. The parallel passage, Mark 14. Jesus is reclining at the table. A woman, that's Mary, came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She breaks the jar and pours it on his head. And it'll get down to his feet. 
Now you need to understand what a pound is. It's somewhere between 12 and 16 ounces depending on the Roman measurement and others. Well, what does that mean? Well, a water bottle is 16 ounces. So just think about her pouring it and pouring it on the head of Jesus. The entire thing of expensive perfume. That's what Mary was doing. She used the entire thing on the Lord and used it up. And do you realize what she is saying? Lord, you are worthy of it all. I love you so much, I give it all to you. I am so grateful for what you've done. You've changed our lives and changed my brother's life. You are worthy of the most precious thing that I own. You are worthy of the most precious thing that I have. I will not hold anything back from you, my Savior. And she pours it all out. And by the way, it's a year's worth of salary. Is what Judas will tell us later with 300 denarii. She pours it out to the Lord. Personal, spontaneous, public, costly, generous, and her worship, she teaches us, is very humble. She anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. Well, being at the feet is the job of a servant, the job of a slave. And as we were singing that first song, in, in wonder and surrender I fall down, that's what Mary does. She's in wonder at her Savior. She's turned her eyes to Jesus. And in wonder and surrender, she falls down. And with great humility, she worships at the feet of Jesus. I want to encourage you to be like Mary. When we look at Mary, we see her often at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 10, she was the one sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he said. Would you sit often at the feet of Jesus and listen to him? We see in John chapter 11, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She falls at his feet. She's expressing the depth of grief and sorrow and sadness of her heart. Would you do that? Would you not hold in your sorrow and your sadness? Would you fall at the feet of Jesus and express what's going on in your heart and tell him the sorrow that you feel and let him know what's going on. Cry out to your God. He loves you. Be at the feet of Jesus. And then in this passage, John 12, she takes this pound of perfume, expensive, pure, and anoints his feet. Would you spend time at the feet of Jesus worshiping him? Would you spend time at his feet giving him your best and giving him your all because he is worthy? Her worship next is unembarrassed. She doesn't care what anybody thinks. She doesn't care what anybody else has to say. She wipes his feet with her hair. First of all, do you know how much time women spend on their hair? And ladies, can you imagine taking your hair and putting it on somebody's feet? Eh, I heard it back over here. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was perfect. You know what she's saying? Such, she's just showing such incredible love and devotion for her Savior. Do you, do you understand? Jewish women did not let their hair down in public. That was a no-no. You didn't let your hair down. Your hair was your glory. 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. 15, that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Do you know what she's doing? She's laying her glory at the feet of Jesus. My glory is yours. Lay your glory at the feet of Jesus. What is your glory? What are you proud of? What have you accomplished? What have you done? Lay your glory at the feet of Jesus. Everything we have is because of him and everything we have is already his. Lay your glory at the feet of Jesus. And her worship is impactful. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's just filled. 
I remember being in a college dorm at Cedarville University many, many years ago. And I was in the men's bathroom and I had Dracar. Remember that cologne, Dracar? Yeah, man, I was cool. I had my Dracar, like a brand new bottle. And I, I dropped it on the tile floor of the men's bathroom. Boom! Just the smell. I couldn't have dropped it anywhere better than a men's bathroom in a, in a dorm, okay? And the smell just lingered for a week at least. is amazing. I want you to understand. We're not only seeing the sight of Mary's worship. I want you to smell the scent of Mary's worship. It is sweet and it is wonderful and it is beautiful. And it not only fills the house, but it has reached around the world for thousands of years. And the sight and the scent of her worship is still enjoyed today. And it's being enjoyed today by you and by me. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 26, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We see his courage and love and we see he's worthy of our worship. And now the story turns. We turn our eyes on Jesus and we learn to stop questioning and criticizing others. Because when we get our eyes off Jesus and we get our eyes on people, that's what we tend to do. We start questioning other people. We start criticizing other people. And now we see and hear the response to Mary's incredible, costly, extravagant, humble, wonderful worship. And we pick it up in John chapter 12, verse 4. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. She's kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, first, we're given a little insight into Judas's life. We're told he's the betrayer. He will be the one that turns Jesus over to the authorities. He will be the one that betrays his friend with a kiss. He will be the one that sells out the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. And we're told in verse 4 he's one of the disciples. He's one of the 12. Please get this. For three years... He has walked with Jesus for three years. He's listened to the teaching of Jesus. For three years, he's had countless meals with Jesus. He has prayed with Jesus. He has served with Jesus. For three years, he has seen the miracles of Jesus. He's partaken in the miracles of Jesus. Passing out the bread. Passing out the fish. The multiplication that would take place in his own hands. By the grace of Almighty God and his power. Do you understand you can be so close to Jesus, but so far away from Jesus? Some of you need to hear that because you're in his house and you're so close to Jesus, but you are so far away from Jesus. You're really not close to him. You're not really walking with him. You're not really listening to his words. You're close, but you're so far away. Judas is a fake. He's a fake in spite of all the serving, in spite of all the singing, in spite of all the praying, in spite of all the fellowshipping, in spite of all the knowledge he has of the word of God, he is a fake. He is not a child of God. Jesus himself would say in John 17, I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction. That's Judas. The son of destruction is the son of judgment, the son of hell. That's Judas. He was a fake. How many fakes are among us today in this place? How many fakes are in churches across this nation and this world? You're so close, but you're so far away. You attend services. You sing songs. You give money. You teach Sunday school classes. Fakes are even in pulpits in churches. There's fakes preaching messages. Think about that for a minute. There's nothing new under the sun. 
it happened with Judas then, it happens today. Don't be surprised at fakes. And until the very end, no one suspected Judas was a fake. Because his actions seemed sincere and he used the right words and he hung out with the right people. Listen carefully. First, please make sure your faith is genuine. Because just because you were raised in a Christian home and you go to a Christian school or you attend church or you have a Bible with your name embossed on it doesn't mean a thing. Make sure your faith is genuine, that you have truly repented of your sin and called out to God for his love and mercy because you need it. He died on that cross for you and he will save you. Don't be a fake. May your faith be genuine. And secondly, not only... Make sure you're genuine. Don't assume everyone's faith is genuine. Because everyone's faith is not. Please get this. You may have friends and family members that you think are saved and going to heaven, but they're not. Because they're close to Jesus, but they're really not. They're far away. And and I understand there are such things as prodigals. We get that. There are prodigals who fall away from the Lord and run away from the Lord and God has to bring them back. But not every prodigal is a genuine believer. Please wrestle and swallow that hard truth. Your child may not be a true believer in Jesus Christ. Your grandson or granddaughter may truly not be saved. Your spouse may not be a true follower of Jesus. Now they may be but they may not be. And you need to start interceding for souls and you need to start having some deep conversations with people because you love them. And you need to ask them some questions about where they are with their God. It's too important. Eternity is on the line. Judas, the antagonist, speaks up and he speaks out. Verse 5, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he is the first to speak. Everyone in the house has watched this incredible display of sacrifice and worship of Mary. And not a word has been spoken. They've all watched it. And then one lone voice issues a complaint. And it's covered in this veneer of care and it's cushioned with this whipped cream of why? Why hasn't, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And these are the very first words of Judas recorded in scripture. And they are words of selfish greed from a deceitful heart full of impure motives. And it's this mixture of question and criticism stirred into one. Why would you do such a thing? And it's condescending, his question. He's calling Mary a fool. He's calling what she did so wrong. This lavish gift is such a lavish waste. Isn't it amazing how quickly someone can turn an act of worship into an act of waste? People do that today. They can turn your act of worship into an act of waste just like that. Don't give that money to God. That's a waste. Don't spend that time serving God. That's a waste. That's a waste of time to teach. It's a waste of time to greet. It's a waste of time to work in a cafe. It's a waste of time to work with kids in VBS. It's a waste of time work on the grounds. Don't go to church so much. That's a waste. Don't go to church. You could stay online. Don't go to church. It's a waste. Can I just say nothing you do for Jesus Christ is a waste. Nothing you do for your Savior is a waste. I'll never forget dedicating my life to ministry, feeling the call of God and telling my grandma and my grandma said, don't you be a pastor, Scotty. That's a waste of your life. Can I tell you for 27 years as your pastor here, I have not wasted my life one, one second. Not one second shepherding, teaching, preaching, loving, caring is never a waste to give your life to Jesus Christ. Don't you ever think anything you do for Jesus is a waste. It is not a waste. Notice how quickly, though, Judas puts a price tag on our worship. Look what he says. 
Why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? See, there's some people that can put a price tag on anything. You ever run into somebody? They just know the price of everything. Some people put price tags on everything to justify their criticism they're about to level or to justify their, their ignorance. It was Irish poet and playwright who, Oscar Wilde who lived in the 1800s who said, the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. That is so good. Same with people today. They know the price of everything. They don't know the importance of anything. They don't understand the value of anything. Sadly, Judas is not alone in his criticism. The instigator and agitator, agitator draws others in with his criticism. It's easy to fall into the criticism with others. It just kind of snowballs. It's easy to be caught up in the criticism. Somebody complains about something and we go right in and we start complaining. Yeah, I agree. And did you know about this? And all of a sudden we get sucked into it like a magnet of criticism. You realize all the disciples joined in? Back to our parallel passages, Matthew 26. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. Mark 14, some were expressing indignation to one another. They're having little conversations in the corner. Yeah, can you believe she did that? What a waste. Why was this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. This poor woman is now being scolded for her beautiful act of love and devotion and worship. She's being made to feel like a fool, embarrassed for her display of love. She's now made to think what she did was wrong, horribly wrong. What a wicked sin to turn somebody's sweet worship into an act of foolishness. What a wicked sin. Be very careful not to criticize another's act of worship, child of God. Be very careful not to act like a Judas. By the way, it doesn't end well for those who criticize people's worship. Remember the story told of David worshiping and dancing in 2 Samuel 6? David was dancing with all his might before the Lord. He's just going to town. The ark's coming into Jerusalem. He's so excited. The city of David is getting their ark. And everybody's dancing and they're singing and they're just blowing the ram's horn. The ark of God is coming. He's just filled with the spirit of God. And he's wearing a linen aphid. What is that? Think apron. He's not wearing much. And he doesn't have his kingly vest, vestments on. He and the whole house of Israel are bringing up the ark of the Lord, shouts the sound of the ram's horn. The ark of the Lord was entering the city of David. Saul's daughter, Michael, that's his wife, looked down from the window, condescending look, looking down her nose, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Oh, what an embarrassment. David returns home. He's so excited. He's going to bless his household. Saul's daughter, his wife, Michael, came out to meet him. Look at her words. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. Slight sarcasm. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. You're an embarrassment as a king. You should be a little bit more distinguished. Look how you were dressed. Look what you were doing. What's his response? I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. You, you see that? Wait till you see more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. Dare not despise the worship of another. Do not think you are so highbrow and sophisticated to look down your nose at the time someone else has spent or the money someone else has given to the work of the Lord or the service they have rendered or the words that they have sung. Please be very careful. It doesn't end well for people who criticize the worship of others. And by the way, when you criticize one's worship, we not only criticize the worshiper, we criticize the one who has received the worship, Jesus. That's what's going on with Judas. When he criticized her, he criticized Jesus. See, with one fell swoop, Jesus criticized the servant of God, Mary. He minimizes the sacrifice of God, this costly perfume. 
And he criticizes our Savior God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only does he call Mary foolish for giving it, he is calling Jesus selfish for accepting it. Jesus should have never accepted this if it should have gone to the poor. So he's not only criticizing Mary, he's criticizing Jesus. Never forget the worship you reject is the worship Jesus accepts. The worship that you are rejecting that somebody else is giving to God is the worship Jesus is accepting. Don't you dare criticize someone else's worship. Whether it's time they give, money they give, service they give, or singing they give. Some people keep their hands to their sides. Some people raise them in praise. That's okay. Psalm 134, lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. It's in scripture. Whether you sing old songs or you sing new songs. Nothing wrong with new songs. Psalm 149. Hallelujah! Sing to the Lord a what? A new song. By the way, that's stated like eight or nine times in scripture. So if you don't sing new songs, you're in sin. He tells us over and over, sing new songs, sing a new song. Sing a new song, sing a new song. And his praise where? In the assembly. Gather with God's people. Be in the habit of gathering with God's people in assembly, singing your praise to God. And whether it's soft or whether it's loud instruments, Psalm 155, praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. That's loud, people. God's either hard of hearing or He likes loud music. And by the way, whether you like to stay or whether you like to sway, Psalm 150, verse 4, Praise him with tambourine and what? Oh, some of you couldn't say that word. (laughs) I can't say that word. We're in church. Dance. God says it for you. By the way, praise him whether you want to clap or whether you don't want to clap. Plotting the Lord for the truth of a song. Shouting out, thanking God for what he's done. Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a jubilant cry. I want you to understand, if it's not expressly sin as taught in the scripture, it's best if you and I just keep our mouths shut and our opinions to ourselves. Because if it's not expressly sin, that means it's your preference. And your preference really doesn't matter. It doesn't. Because worship is for Jesus, not for you. It's not for you and it's not for me. And so be very careful If it's not sin, please be very careful. It's best we just keep our mouth shut and our opinions to ourselves. Because some of us have been raised in certain traditions and and that are maybe a little bit more critical and accusatory. And we need to be very careful. Because this is the authority. This is our authority. Not opinions and not preferences. And the truth is, you may not like their worship, but God loves it. God loves it. Judas didn't like Mary's worship. Guess what? Jesus loved it. Poured that whole thing on him. Anointed his feet. They didn't like it. Jesus loved it. Don't be a Judas when it comes to the worship of other people. And now we get the truth about Judas in verse 6. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He's a thief. He's in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it, was put into it. So, so caring for the poor was his smokescreen of his true motives and his greed. See, critical people are oftentimes just selfish people in disguise. Critical people are oftentimes just very selfish people in disguise. And selfish people don't make good worshipers. They don't understand generosity. They're critical of other people. And they dishonor God. And so when people question and criticize worship, it really reveals more about their own dark, sinful heart than the heart of somebody else. If you and I are critical of somebody's worship, it really says more about us and our sinfulness as opposed to that other person. He's a thief. The word is kleptos. We got our word kleptomaniac. Judas was a kleptomaniac. That's what he was. 
Stealing and stealing and stealing. And Mary's worship must have driven him absolutely crazy, watching all this money just be poured down the drain, literally thinking if he could just get his hands on that. Couldn't take it. How warped is he? That's what happens when you get your eyes on Jesus. You're warped. When you don't have your eyes on Jesus, you're warped. Get your eyes on Jesus. He starts seeing extravagant generosity as extravagant waste. He starts becoming so critical of love and worship. He's turned his eyes upon money and not upon Jesus. You and I will be warped until we keep our eyes on Jesus. And then finally, turn your eyes on Jesus and we value his protection and his perspective. And I just love verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, leave her alone. She's kept it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you. You don't always have me. And he commends and he defends Mary's worship with a swift rebuke of Judas and these disciples. Judas is like, objection. Jesus quickly overruled. This will not be tolerated, criticizing someone else's worship. It won't be tolerated in his court of law. It won't be tolerated in Simon's house. It will not be tolerated in God's house, by the way criticizing someone's worship. And I love how Jesus defends women against self-righteous men. Don't miss that. Jesus is always defending women against self-righteous men. He did it with this woman caught in adultery. Do you remember? You who are without sin, you throw that first stone. They all had to leave with their tails tucked between their legs. And then he would speak to the woman, I forgive you, go and sin no more. He does it here, defending this woman, Mary, offering her sweet worship. Leave her alone. Jesus always defends women against self-righteous men. Not only does he defend the worshiper, he then elevates her worship. She's kept this for the day of my burial. Now, whether Mary fully understood Jesus' sacrifice to come and his resurrection, we don't know. We know she sat at the feet of Jesus and listened and learned. But he elevates her worship. This is not just an act of kindness for raising the dead, Lazarus. But this is an act of love and preparation for my death. Jesus is basically saying this. She's given me those roses before my funeral so that I can enjoy them. Instead of just laying them on my casket. She's given me these roses ahead of time. She's elevated, he's elevated her worship. And then he gives the proper perspective, verse 8. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. There's always going to be poor people. Always. And this is not callousness toward the poor. He's not saying don't be generous with those in need. He's saying keep your priorities straight in this life. Turn your eyes on me first and foremost. And do you notice Mary always chooses the better? She chose the better to sit at Jesus' feet and listen and learn. She chooses the better to worship at his feet and give her best and her all. I want to say thank you to you who chose the better today. You came to worship Jesus. You came to sit at his feet. You came to listen and learn. You came to worship. Take this every single day with you. Wake up tomorrow and say, Lord, I want to choose what's better. I want to keep my eyes on you. Every single day, I want to choose what's better. Lord, I need to keep my eyes on you. He said, you don't always have me. So while you have the opportunity, worship him. We're not here for long. Give to him. Serve him. Love him. Turn your eyes upon him and choose what's better. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. John 12, what have we learned? Behold his courage and love. He's worthy of our worship. Stop questioning and criticizing others and value his protection and his perspective. Let's pray together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just talk to the Lord. You are believers in him. Would you just thank him for what you've learned today? Would you commit to choose what's better and to turn your eyes upon him?
Would you confess any and all sin? Maybe God, by his spirit, has revealed some things in your life that are not right. Whatever they are, confess that now. He is so full of mercy and so full of grace and he loves you and I. Ask him to cleanse you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here today and you've not come to faith in Jesus. He is so full of grace and he is so full of mercy. Dare not fake a relationship with your God. Genuinely come to him, fall at his feet and ask for his forgiveness even today. And you may say, Scott, that's me. I, I need God in my life. I need forgiveness. What do I do? In the quietness of this moment right now and in the quietness of your heart, would you just call out to him? Would you just sincerely ask him to forgive you and save you? Just use words like these. Lord, I need you. Lord, would you please forgive me of all of my wickedness, all of my sinfulness. God, would you please save me from my sin? Forgive me, please. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for taking all of my sin and dying for me. I place my faith in you. I can't save myself. I place my faith in you alone. Please forgive me. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit at harvest.church.